Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is the New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with John Bushman, author of Libraries, Classrooms, and the Interests of Democracy, Marking the Limits of Neoliberalism. I hope that you enjoy the interview with John. John, how are you doing? All right. Thank you. John, it's a real pleasure. I know some about your background, given that we are at the same institution. But why don't you uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, what your background is, uh, where you are now, and and, uh, where this project fits into your scholarship. Um, That's actually kind of an interesting story. um, I've been an academic librarian for, I guess, about 30 years now um, and was in a library faculty system for a long time at a neighboring institution, Ryder University. And I, I actually was was quite active in my scholarship, starting out with a, uh, a kind of a critical analysis of technology and moved on um, from that. And, and after 10 years after I had done a, a, a pretty notable book, edited a pretty notable book, I published a book called Dismantling the Public Sphere, essentially taking the ideas of Habermas in the public sphere and... and um, Kind of bringing it down mostly to libraries, but also to classrooms. And interestingly enough, I got um, uh, sort of critiqued about that, um, specifically on the notion that I was sort of nodding toward democracy, but that, you know, this was a kind of postmodern critique, that democracy didn't really mean much of anything, couldn't mean much of anything, and that it was very difficult to, to uh, therefore, to, to advocate for something or to make an argument for something that was, was so amorphous. And um, I edited, ironically enough, about three or four more books in between there. I got involved in a, a, with another scholar in Canada. But that sort of critique and that sort of focus kept my interest, and I kept researching it. I moved to Georgetown University in uh, 2007, and they have a, um, a doctoral program, and it's School of Continuing Studies, doctoral program um, in liberal studies, which is essentially interdisciplinary. And answering that sort of question and critique became the focus of my dissertation, which was um, the basis of the book. 
One of the things that, that you touch on the book and that, that I uh, think has actually pulled together uh, a number of conversations I've had with book authors over the last couple of months is this idea of neoliberalism. And, and before we get to what your book um, actually uh, sort of focuses on, and before we get to the discussion of neoliberalism, I wonder if you can uh, briefly talk about um, what the classic role of libraries have played in democratic societies. This is something that you spent a lot of time with. Political scientists may not spend as much. So in terms of the foundations here of, of what you're looking at, what has that role been for libraries in democratic societies? So you, you, it's, it's interesting that you would phrase it that way because it's the in democratic societies. That's the other critique, that libraries are this sort of neutral tool. Um, but it's, it's, my analysis is of, of classrooms and libraries in a democratic society. And essentially, they were coterminous with the rise of, of the common school, commonly known as, as public education in the United States. They lagged a few years behind, but not, not much. <clears throat> and they both, um, arose in the same region of the United States, the Northeast, and then spread out from there. And they had a kind of um, a dual purpose early on. They were a, a sort of an element of, or, or, or a tool uh, of social control. They were really meant to sort of tame um, uh, of, of what was thought to be an unruly um, immigrant society for North American Protestant democratic culture. And then it's undeniable that they were also this sort of zone of and of freedom and discovery, and that it was novel that these kinds of resources would be available to people um, freely, um, and that their, their restrictions on their use became less and less and less onerous until we sort of arrived around, you know, somewhere before the mid-20th century at, at what we're pretty familiar with, an, an open resource um, for uh, students and citizens and users um, to develop themselves and, and inquire in any way they so wished. So that's, that's the sort of happy part of it. I mean, the, the, the real institutional part is that they've always struggled between different kinds of mandates and, and tried to serve many different kinds of publics. And by and large, they're well supported um, throughout democratic cultures. And people tend to see them as... Um, as a democratic good, I guess is the best way I would put it. And when I sweep in libraries, I, I sweep in all types. I, you know, there's not as much distinction between Seton Hall, which is open to the public, you know, our institution, which is open to the public, um, and people can come in and use these resources freely as long as they abide by our rules, and you know, South Orange Public or or Montclair Public. Right. It's certainly something that's taken for granted and, and not um, uh, thought of in, in, in the ways that, that you're presenting in the book. I think it's a really interesting perspective on political scientists interested in, in democracies. What your book talks about, particularly at the start, um, and that I thought was very interesting, in part because uh, just last week I, I had the chance to, to speak to another one of our colleagues who's written a book uh, about school reform. Um, and is about this, this uh, uh, A Nation at Risk report. So in the mid-1980s, uh, A Nation at Risk was written, and it's gotten a lot of attention, and it addressed a crisis in American education. You write in the book that there was a parallel report that was written on libraries a year later. 
Um, so who wrote that report, and, and does it make a parallel argument to a nation at risk in terms of identifying a, a national crisis? Yes, it, it actually came out of uh, a nation at risk and was meant as a sort of a, a blue-ribbon sub-report. It also came out of the U.S. Department of Education, and I can't recall the title at the moment. It's obviously quoted in the book, but it used the same kind of rhetoric that um, America was um, economically falling behind, that one of the primary points of, of fault for that um, was our, edu- our educational system, and the key within the educational system uh, in this case was that, that libraries were not helping what they called the, the sort of new learning society um, um, let that be born and be more vigorously pursued throughout the, um, the, uh, the culture. And the underlying tone was exactly as it was with the nation at risk. It was for purposes of, of economic competitiveness, not even economic mobility. It was economic competitiveness. Which in many ways gets us into this discussion of neoliberalism. Um, I talked with Daniel Stedman-Jones about his recent book about the intellectual um, history behind the development of neoliberalism. And one of, the, one of the points that he makes is this is a term that, that, that is defined very differently in different places and sometimes accurately and sometimes inaccurately. How do you define neoliberalism in your book? Well, because my focus is, um, is institutional, in other words, how these ideas work their way into institutions and their policies and how they're governed and how that in turn touches students and citizens and users and, and researchers, um, my focus tends to be on the sort of power, the, the cultural power of the economic argument. In other words, it, it tends to be uh, neoliberalism as, as kind of policy assumption and, and policy driver at this low or low cultural level, low as in closer to to the ground and, and the people that it affects. And so I tend to think of neoliberalism as this attractive set of ideas that explains a lot to people in intuitively sensible terms. In other words, there's, people are choosing these policies in ways that, you know, the... the, um, the, the uh, World Trade Organization and the, uh, the the big global banks aren't making them do it. They're 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 agreeing with or or agreeing with the power of a set of ideas, and that is that the market is um, the most fair means to adjudicate between um, uh, competing interests. That people can 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 compete or enter the market on a fair basis. It, it really appeals to American individualism and that um, people are relatively autonomous in how they um, participate and make their choices. We all have choices to make, and so why not make them on a more fair basis in a, in a kind of an open market? And this is a metaphor that then tends to extend out into um, fields like like schools and libraries where they say, well, if you want more um, choice in the, in the food in your school, why not let the market 
um, uh, provide all of these choices within the school hallways and the lunchroom and let the kids choose. If you want certain sets of services in your library, why not go get corporate sponsors or or um, see if you can go out there and aggressively market these and drum up uh, support. And of course, what happens is the institutions get a return on the on the dollar, which is um, a, a return on the investment, a return on the, the commitments that they're making, and that um, certainly sets the institutions up on a different footing with their publics. Yeah, and, and one of the, um, you know, this is both a theoretical discussion, but, but it's practical as well. And, and you describe in the book the advent of Channel One and, and Chris Whittle, yep. who's known in lots of different sectors, but at that, but at that time and place in, in the 1980s, he was most strongly affiliated with, with Channel One. So, Who's Chris Whittle, and and what is his role in this neoliberal push in the 1980s and 90s? What what role does Channel One play that that um, there really hadn't been uh, precursors that uh, uh, this really was the first in this in this um, in this area? So who's Chris Whittle? Um, Chris Whittle was the founder of Whittle Communications, and essentially uh, the easiest way into who he is and what he invented is. That he's the guy that invented that media that you see in the uh, doctor's or dentist's office that plays incessantly. That uh, is this combination of news and advertisement um, directed directly at you and the reason you're there. So when you are in the doctor's office, you will see uh, fake kind of CNN-like reports on um, health and asthma. Um, uh, children in nutrition, you know, all the kind of varieties of things that people are there for, and then it will switch over to um, um, advertisements for Advair and uh, dental health and, you know, whatever else is appropriate and linked to the news stories. That really started out as a series of magazines. What it does is it, his agreement is he will provide the equipment and they'll pipe in the um, the content for free, which can't have any other kinds of content in there competing, not advertisement, not not other kinds of media. And this started out as magazines. He would provide these for free, but they were the same kind of mix of information and advertisement, you know, freely mixed together, and the agreement was you wouldn't have anything else in there. Um, he took this model of you provide the delivery mechanism, you install it, and you provide it for free, but you can't do anything else with that mechanism, and he wired schools. He offered them to schools, and he, and he wired them. And the, the sweetener was that you would get 10 minutes of, of news programming in the morning with two minutes of um, advertising. And these were generally middle school to high school uh, pitched at that level. Uh, the schools got the wiring for nothing. And ostensibly, they could use this, this infrastructure for other um, kinds of things, although that was pretty restrictive what they could actually use it for. And the agreement was that the school would make sure that um, 90% of the students were always present, paying attention 90% of the time. So this became a homeroom staple at the beginning of, of the school year. And what this was, was, you know, this 10 minutes of news became very sort of uh, quickly, very MTV and entertainment-like, and then that blended seamlessly with the 10 minutes of advertising for Skittles and um, popular food products and Taco Bell and jeans and hair care and, and uh, things that, that um, uh, 
play to the fears and worries of adolescents like acne medicine. And that was the basic model of, of Whittle Communications. He essentially was not a very good manager, and Whittle Communications ran into some financial problems. He was more visionary than manager. But the point is, is that the, the pattern that he set, this captive audience and capturing students and marketing directly to them, and supposedly solving an educational problem, you know, lack of knowledge about current events. There's a famous New York Times advertisement that he put in there that said, you know, people thought that uh, Chernobyl was Cher's uh, um, full first name and they um, uh, thought that Jesse Jackson was, um, you know, the, an old um, African-American baseball player. You know, all this kind of misinformation that's out there for the we know about the public in general. And this was the educational problem he was going to solve and pay for through the venue of marketing. Um, though he kind of crashed and burned in business terms, there are still plenty of uh, examples out there following his playbook. Um, there's a company called Bus Radio that um, uh, does music and, and then advertisements to a captive audience of students being um, uh, transported on the bus. There are uh, Coke machines in the hallways that kids have to go past. And then most notably, there's a pretty vigorous program of um, uh, reupholstering bus seats with um, uh, coverings that have advertisements that you know sit right in front of the kids and then plastering the outside of which. You know, they're, they're, the whole idea and the whole um, moral um, qualms behind this, I'm not speaking in terms of my book, is, of course, that these public institutions and their purposes appear to be endorsing the nutritional value of Skittles and Cheetos and um, uh, Calvin Klein jeans and, you know, the, the panoply of things that are marketed. You there? And yes, I am. And and I think that yeah, and then there are there's sort of outcrops of lots of these things in lots of different places. And so what is your argument? What is the argument you make about uh the risks that this poses? Not the specific risk that channel one, but the risks that the 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 tendency or the, the these new intrusions um have on uh libraries or uh, classrooms in general. Um, what's what's the theoretical argument that that you're you're making in this book? It's really twofold, and if I can if I can kind of illustrate with with something that's strongly implied in the book, but I, I can make much more directly in the, in the form of this interview. This is something every parent intuitively knows that you need to interpose yourself between this tsunami. Of, of advertising and marketing that goes directly at very, very, very young children um, before they know the difference between an advertisement and or a jingle and the, the, the program that they're, they're watching. Every parent intuitively knows this because they don't want their kids, you know, drinking Mountain Dew at age 18 months um, first thing in the morning or maybe ever. Um, and they know that this idea will get planted and circulates very fast and very powerfully. Essentially, we are in these public educative institutions, as I call them. They have a particular role um, 
which my my mentor Jerry Marr at Georgetown calls you know that the the sort of bringing forth and fostering of judgment that the democratic citizens need. If we just give childhood adolescence over and don't inculcate some distance um, through the institutions that we actually do have some democratic control over, um, and and make this point. Um, we're doing real damage to the kinds of, of selves that inhabit democracy, and this damage becomes more progressive. I use sort of Tocqueville as a way to kind of historically establish that that um, these public educative institutions were, were, you know, I use Tocqueville as a way to really argue that small things do make a difference, particularly when we're dealing with the young. And that we, we set patterns and expectations and we define things like citizenship and, uh, and give it a certain cast fairly early on. I talk then about the, the communitarians and I talk about the way that, that marketing sort of, um, infiltrates is the wrong word, but it, but it sort of grows roots inside of our culture through the technologies of communication and, and the ways that it, it, it just sort of insinuates itself, I guess is a better word, into areas like the classroom that we really would have thought would have been spaces apart, spaces to think without the language or the, the images of, of marketing and advertising um, um, flashing in front of us. And of course, what neoliberalism does is it opens the doors for those to, to, to continue um, their efforts to sell inside of these these institutions, and you know, let me just uh, raise one one question for you because it, it really did. Um, I was uh, you know, very convinced and, and persuaded by by the argue, the theoretical argument that you make, but it also did occur to me that you have a a, a kind of advantageous perspective on this, given that you're writing as a scholar but also as an administrator. And so I wonder if you, you have any thoughts about, you know, in, in practice, how difficult this is to, to hold to the principle when we know state budgets are declining, um, uh, resources are scarce, and, you know, the offer of something as crude as advertising in a library could save a whole collection uh, from, from going away. If you put your administrator hat on for a second... Maybe you could walk through how that how that um, tightrope has to be walked in terms of the, the the offers that come to university libraries or or universities in general to do marketing or to sell or to market goods um, that that often come with some money maybe not a lot of money but it's better than nothing. What is what is that conversation like? Um, have you been involved in it? And, and how do you maybe how do you recommend? Um, that that principle be negotiated in practice. It's interesting that you would say, you know, it may not be very much. We have to understand what we're bartering with and what its true worth is. Um, if a university affiliates with um, a company and appears to endorse it, you know, I don't think we ever, I don't think any public institution is ever in a position to get the true value um, and credibility that they're 
they're appearing alongside these um, these uh, corporations and their products really convey. Um, that said, I make the point in the book that this is not a purist argument. Um, we here at Seton Hall, um, right before I came, put a Dunkin' Donuts in the library. And it's actually kind of an interesting case study because the people who were making that decision here in the library at the time, um, I don't think necessarily agreed with it. And they had two choices. They could make the space permeable um, between the library proper and the area that the um, that Dunkin' Donuts was taking over, and they would have preserved access to outdoor light, which we have none in this crucial space. And that, that's a uh, a kind of a good uh, uh, that was bartered away um, for the students and the users. What they chose instead to do was to do a solid wall and to make the two spaces distinct, permeable. You can go back and forth, but distinct. Um, I don't know what the university got in return um, for making that space available. It was a service that the students did want. Um, and I don't think, I think our, our um, experience has proven that the kind of prudishness about uh, food and books and coffee and, and libraries was maybe a little overdrawn and that there's nothing wrong with the students um, talking and enjoying themselves and continuing to fuel up um, while they're working um, amid our resources. So that, I think, is a positive step forward. I rather like the decision to keep the two spaces distinct. I would have chosen a little different configuration if I were, you know, king of Seton Hall and and had the ability to make um, those, those uh, decisions and configurations completely on my own. But given where we ended up, it was not a bad compromise. The point that I made in my book talk is that if we are even talking about if we are talking um, as we are now about what the proper role and, and relationship between a corporate sponsor or a service that they can offer um, and the library proper, what that should be, um, I think we've made more progress already in simply having that conversation and talking about what the proper limits are than the situation we're in now. Um, it's much like the, the, the parent worrying about what um, the two-year-old sees or gravitates toward in the grocery store or hears um, on and watches on television. It, it is interposing a series of judgments and necessary um, conservation of credibility and distance that hasn't been happening progressively for, for 25 years. Um, and so it really is a matter of saying, gee, the support is something we wouldn't have got and what we're giving away is nothing. It really is saying, no, we need to think about the relationship to these kinds of funding sources and make decisions about how close we get, um, what it is the value that of what the value is that we're really sort of lending in this affiliation. And is what we're doing mission critical, and, and does it really forward uh, what the institution um, needs and wants to do? So there's a, an awful lot more in the book, 
Um, but your book, Libraries, Classrooms, and the Interests of Democracy, has uh, very recently been published by Scarecrow Press. Um, I uh, recommend it to everyone, uh, not just those that are interested in the, the, the small topic, but I think this does speak to some, some much bigger issues um, in, a, in a very interesting way. So, John, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.